right. You guys might know about old little Johnny. I got it. I'm ready. Okay, good. Yeah, much better. Old little Johnny. You know, he'd go into class and his teacher never knew really what to do with him. Because he'd always say some crazy stuff. And he wasn't always the most truthful about stuff. So his teacher comes in one Monday and says, Hey, what did anybody do today? What did anybody do this weekend? And little John says, Oh, he raised his hand. I always want to be the one to raise his hand and talk to him in class. And she said, Yeah, little John, what would you do? He said, oh, I went fishing. She said, Really? What kind of fishing do you do? He said, Well, me and my dad took his eight-foot John boat out, and we went on this lake, and we went fishing for catfish. She said, Did you have any luck? He said, oh, yeah, we wore them out, caught a hundred fish. She said, wow, you caught a hundred catfish. That's remarkable. She said, how big were they? He said, they weighed a hundred pounds apiece. <laughs> she said, little Johnny, what did you say you were in? He said, my dad's eight-foot jumbo. She said, you, you understand that a hundred fish at a hundred pounds apiece would be ten thousand pounds. Most John boats that I know have a capacity of five hundred pounds. Did you put them all in the boat? He said, yes, ma'am. Put every one of them in the boat. Caught 100 of them, weighed 100 pounds of people. She said, Johnny, you are making that up. That is not true. That could not have happened. Whatever, that, that's what happened. That's what we She said, I just made stuff up. Like I'm on my way to school driving my little Toyota Prius and all of a sudden this big 10-foot tall grizzly bear comes out of the woods, gets in front of my Prius, starts shaking it back and forth. He's about to come around the door, but this little two-foot... I mean, this little two-pound chihuahua comes from the other side, jumps up, grabs him on the nose, flips him over, beats him up, and chases him off. Would you believe that? Well, John said, yes, ma'am. That's my dog. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you've got a dog like that, but don't we all wish we did? We are going to be looking at the implications of a belief. Now, let me tell you what an implication is. An implication is something that is not stated explicitly in the discussion, but it is just as true even though you might not have come to the conclusion yet. Let me give you an example. Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. Those are the two explicit things that you have. Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. What does that infer? Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. But you don't say that. So you'd be looking for, here are the two things we've got stated, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, and we're looking for what are the inferences of those two statements. And so all belief systems, all statements of reality have some type of inference to them. If you were to say that all wood is a certain level of hardness, but a diamond is the hardest thing that you have in the physical world that we've got, what's the inference of that? Okay, you've got a really hard piece of wood, but if a diamond is harder, then the diamond is going to scratch the wood because of its harshness. Now, the two things you know is the piece of wood is this hardness, the diamond is this hardness, and maybe you've never tried to scratch a piece of wood with a diamond, but which one is going to win? If you know the 
relative hardness of the two. The diamond's always going to win. That's the inference to the things that are stated. Now, there are some inferences to the idea there is a God. And that means this. There are some inferences to the idea there is no God. And that means this. A man by the name of George Walser said, Hey, I believe that living like there's no God is the very best possible way to live. And I'm going to found a town in 1880 called Liberal, Missouri. Now, here are the stipulations to being a citizen of this particular town. You cannot believe in God. You cannot believe in heaven or hell or the Bible or anything that has any supernatural capacity. You have to believe in the here and now. And that's it. And he said, I believe that if people didn't waste their time on thinking about spiritual things and they only focused on material things, then they'd build better buildings and they would be better people and they'd focus their attention on stuff here. And so he said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have the social experiment. George Walser said that I'm going to the world that socially atheism is a much better idea than the idea of creation or theism. And I'm going to show you what a society looks like when that is the case. And so these are some pictures I took when I went out to Liberal, Missouri. Liberal, Missouri is still around, although it's not anything like it was when it was originally founded. That's Walser Avenue, named after George Walser. This is Darwin Drive. That's Thomas Paine Drive, Robert Ingersoll Lane. For some of the more outspoken unbelievers and people who question the Bible, etc. Well, there's a man by the name of Clark Braden. If I understand it right, Clark Braden was a member of the Lord's Church. And he decided he was going to go visit Liberal, Missouri. Did go visit for a time Liberal, Missouri. And when he got out of his visit from Liberal, Missouri, he wrote an article that was posted in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Now, this is actually a copy of the very article. We called the county seat there of Liberal, Missouri, got the article from 1885, and it's titled, An Infidel Experiment. And he says, okay, George Walter said he was going to do this. I went into the town, and here's what I saw. And he starts writing about what he saw. And here's what he says. He said that the ethical and moral situation of Liberal, Missouri had digressed to such a degree that everybody cussed. He said all the women, all the men, all the children. He said the children didn't obey their parents at all. He said the hotels were brothels. Everybody was drunk. On, most everybody was drunk on a regular basis. The hotel and house owners want to sell their property, but they can't because the property value has dropped so low. And the place is exactly the opposite of what George Walter claimed to be doing with Liberal, Missouri. Interestingly, one of the hotel owners who... Inferentially, he called a brothel owner, sued Clark Braden for $25,000. And in 1885, $25,000 was a considerable amount of money. The case came to the court. The case was immediately thrown out because what Clark Braden said about liberal was exactly right. He had the evidence to prove it. The man who sued him had to pay all of the court costs, and Braden didn't have to pay a dime. Because what he said was true. It wasn't libel. It wasn't slander. It was the facts. George Walser had thought that if we just found a society on unbelief, it would be a better place to live. He was wrong. 
because of the inferences attached to the idea there is no God. Now, George Walser later ran into the teachings of Jesus Christ and realized I was wrong about any of that. He started studying the teachings of Christ. And what was interesting about that is when you go to Liberal, Missouri, the cemetery situation is so odd. It's the oddest I've ever seen. That All of the graves are in a big circle. And in the center of the circle is an empty spot that George Walser was going to be buried in. But when he later realized his experiment was an abject failure, he said, I don't want to be buried there with a bunch of those unbelievers because when the Lord comes again, things are not, I want to be buried somewhere else. And so he was buried in Lamar, Missouri, which is about 45 miles outside of Liberal, Missouri, and changed absolutely the way he lived his life. And here's what you find out. When you look at this idea of unbelief and compare it to the idea of the existence of God, you ask this simple question. What if people really behaved like they believed Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and was telling them what God wanted them to do? What if people really did that? What if people really did to other people what they want done to them? What if people really did love others as brothers and sisters and understood and believed that there is no superiority to any race or ethnic group or gender? What if people really did have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it something to be held on to, to be equal with God, but emptied himself? And what mind is that? Two verses earlier there in the book of Philippians chapter 2, it tells you, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Would you like to live in a place where people acted like Christians? Yeah. In fact, the quote I'm giving you here is from a man who wrote an article titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. He didn't believe in Christianity at all. He's not Christianity's friend. This guy's name is Bertrand Russell. And here's what he said, though, of Christianity. He said, Christianity, as soon as it conquered the state, put an end to the gladiatorial shows. He said, not because they were cruel, but they were idolatrous. The result was to diminish widespread education and cruelty. Christianity also did much to soften a lot of slaves. It established charity on a large scale. It built hospitals. Now notice this. And this point. That, that needs to be made. Although Christians failed lamentably in Christian charity, the ideal in every age inspired some notable saints. In a new form, it passed over modern liberalism and remains the inspiration behind much that is most hopeful in our somber world. He said our lot of Christians said they were Christians didn't act like it. Now let's get this nailed down right here before we go any further. Do people say they're Christians and not act like Christians lots of times? Absolutely positively. You will see people who say, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm a Christian and they will be committing adultery. They'll be stealing from their ministry or their job. They will maybe even be murdering people or saying they cuss. and say Lots of people call themselves Christians and they don't act like Christians. What does that say about Christ and His teachings? Nothing. 
It says this person is not reflecting the truth of Jesus' teachings. Here's the next point. Just because atheism might infer something, does that mean that everybody who says they don't believe in God is going to behave that way? No. And what we're going to find out is there are very serious and damaging and destructive inferences to the idea there is no God, therefore. But what you're going to find is there are lots of very moral people who are atheists and unbelievers and they're going to be kind and nice and they are going to be honest in many ways, etc. And so when you look at that, when you look at a person who calls himself a Christian and doesn't act like a Christian, and you look at a person who says, I don't believe in God, but does act morally, neither of those things says anything about the implications of the belief. And so what we need to understand here is people who were going through, who were in charge of the Spanish Inquisition, they were not acting like Christians, though they said they were. People who were involved in killing the Muslims to take back the Holy Lands and the Crusades, they weren't acting like Christians, even though they said they were. You can look at Jesus Christ and His teachings and see that's not what would come from the teachings of Jesus. And what I'm going to show you tonight is you can look at atheism and its inferences and see that legitimate, positive morality cannot come from atheism. It just is impossible. Now, you don't have to take my word for that, though. I'm going to let the atheist this evening answer these questions for you. And here's what I mean. I, as a Christian... As a very, uh, I am glad to be a Christian. I believe it is the way to live your life. I believe the Bible is God's Word with all of my heart. I believe that's based on the evidence that I've seen. And it's not a leap in the dark. I think you can prove that. And I am excited to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I know He needs to be yours. And there are lots of things that He has that you need. Can I show them to you? I'm excited to say that. Now, when I then say atheism implies this, a lot of people can say, well, you're just saying that because you're a Christian. Okay, no. I'm, I'm not just saying that because I'm a Christian. It actually is the implication of atheism, but I'm going to let you see the atheist say it for themselves. And so this is not Kyle Butt telling you this is what atheism implies. This is the leading atheist in the world admitting this is what atheism implies. Okay, do you see the difference there? You see where we're going with this? Okay, so when I say atheism can't answer moral questions, I'm going to show you that's not me saying that. The atheists themselves are saying, no, we can't really answer moral questions. That's not what we do. We, we can't even do it. And as you look at this particular biology teacher, William Provine, he was doing a Darwin Day presentation at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And he was talking about, hey, if atheism is true, what does that imply? And notice what he says. Naturalistic evolution has clear consequences, I would call those implications, that Charles Darwin understood perfectly. No gods worth having exist. No life after death exists. No ultimate foundation for ethics exists. No meaning for life. No human free will. Now I have, have lectures on all of these. The, the meaning of life, the despair of atheism, and the human free will. Those are interesting studies. 
But what we're going to be dealing with right here is this idea, no ultimate foundation for ethics exists. Now, ethics is the discussion of what you should morally do. And according to William Provine, who was one of the leading atheistic speakers at the time, he said, if you don't believe in God and you believe that you evolved from primordial slime over millions of years, then you can't really even answer a question, what should I do, what shouldn't I do? That's not even the question. Because evolution cannot help you with that because evolution doesn't give you a foundation. Atheistic evolution doesn't give you a foundation to say, this is right, this is wrong. Okay, well, what would that look like then? Well, we're going to see. Charles Darwin, in his autobiography, here's what he says. A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem the best to him. Okay, it says Charles Darwin, who was the father of what we would understand to be evolution, said, all I know based on what I understand about evolution, if we evolve from primordial slime over millions and millions of years, then the only way you can make decisions is whatever you feel like doing, or whatever impulses drive you to do something. Okay, so you asked a simple question years ago. There was a guy down in Montgomery, Alabama. His wife called him, asked him to pick up some milk and bread on home. He picked up some milk and bread. There were two people outside of the Walmart where he was. They wanted his truck. So he walked out, they shot him, killed him dead, stole his truck. According to Darwin, why would those people do that? Did they do something morally wrong? Well, they just follow the instincts and impulses that seem the best to them at the time. And so what he's saying is, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in a future heaven or hell, then all I can see that you would do if you believe that you evolved from animals is just to do whatever instincts push you to do. I mean, that's what animals do. The lion chases the antelope because his instincts tell him to. The gorilla does this because his instincts tell him to. And if that's what you are, just a higher animal, then whatever your instincts tell you to do, then that's all I know to say how you could make a, any type of decision about how you should or should not behave. Now, other atheists take it even further. There again, I discussed with you Dan Barker in a debate that he's had. He's had hundreds of them, actually. I was just one of the many he's been in. This was a guy named Peter Payne. And he said, there are no actions in and of themselves that are always absolutely right or wrong. It depends on the context. You can't name an action that's absolutely right or wrong. I can think of an exception in every case. Now think about that. He said, there's not an action that's always morally right or morally wrong. So a student who was listening to this came up to the, to the mic after the debate was over where they have question and answers. And the student said, okay, Dan, you've said that any action is morally right or wrong. Would it ever be right to rape a person? Parker said, well, some of this stuff is so kind of outlandish. You would never be in the situation. But yes, there's a, there's a point in time where it would, if, if aliens came down and said, we're going to kill all of humanity unless you do that to one girl over here, then yes, it would be your moral obligation to do that to save all of humanity. Okay, now I knew he said that, and that's as far as that discussion went. 
So in my debate then, I stood up with him and I said, Dan, you know, you made this statement. Do you still believe it? He said, yeah. I said, you said it would be moral to do this to one person. What about two? He said, yeah. I said, well, what about 200? He said, yeah. I said, what about 2,000? He said, yeah. I said, what about 2 million? You see where that goes. Okay, so whatever action you were doing that would be morally wrong from a standpoint of if there's a God, then this would be morally wrong. From the atheistic evolutionary standpoint, as long as you're saving humanity physically, well, that means you could kill or do whatever terrible thing you wanted to to 49% of the population, as long as you save 51 of them. And so I said, Dan, so you're saying, now, naively, I thought as a, you know, this was back in 2009, so I mean, this was when I was 14. I mean, I, I thought, okay, I was a little older than that, but I thought if I can get him to say this in public, that's game over. If he says yes, and he literally said it would be my moral obligation to do that. I would hate myself, I would probably kill myself, but I would be doing what's my moral obligation. I thought, okay, game over, we've, we've just finished People who connect to this idea of unbelief and evolution and atheism, they will realize this is the implication and they will want nothing to do with it. And he said, well, I would do it because it would be saving humanity. And I said, so basically, okay, so saving humanity, that would be the reason, that would be the ethical reason why you do it. He said, yeah, I'd be saving humanity. So I pulled out a card from a quote from one of the Nazi doctors who was involved in killing thousands of Jews and the Nazi doctor said, I did this because I thought it would help and save humanity. And I said, Dan, do you think he's ethical? And he said, well, no, he wouldn't be, but I would be. You see the problem with that. The problem is that if there's no God and there's no standard for what actually is ethical or right, then what you think is just as ethical as what I think. And if what you think is uh, punching people in the nose gets your life into a better situation than you are now, and I think being kind to another person gets your life in a better situation than it is right now, well then, hey, just follow the instincts and impulses which seem best to you because atheistic materialistic evolution can't answer these questions. Okay, that's not me saying that. Dan Barker said that in public to thousands of people that it would be his moral obligation. Continue with me. Where would you get the idea that it would be alright to kill unborn children? I don't know what happened to our country in 1973 where reasonable people in so many other areas of their life would state that an unborn child is not a person. We know better than that. Scientifically, we know better than that. Sociologically, we know better than that. Because when a person in this country kills a pregnant lady, they are charged with two counts of murder. Now, how is it you're charged with two counts of murder if the unborn child is not a person? Well, there's absolutely no way you can come to the conclusion that it would be all right to kill an unborn child from a God-Bible standpoint. You can't do it. And here's why. Because God states emphatically in the beginning, 
in Genesis chapters 1, chapter 1, 25, 26 and following. He says, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness. And so he created them male and female in his own image. And that word man means mankind or humankind. And he specifically makes sure everybody understands that when he says, and he created them male and female. And then in chapter 9, after the flood, he says to Noah, you can eat any animal out there. Eat all the animals you want. But do not kill another human. Because humans are made in the likeness of man, I mean in the likeness of God. Humans, mankind is made in the likeness of God. And they are different from all animals. They're not on the same level. They're absolutely in a different category. Now where in the world you would get the idea that it would be alright to kill unborn human babies? You can never get it from the idea that there is a God and that humans are made in His image. You are murdering a person in direct violation to God's commandments. You know, I find it so very disturbing that several years ago when those terrorists flew those planes into the Twin Towers in New York, that day they killed about 2,700 people. Truly a day that will live in infamy. You know what doctors did that day? They literally ripped apart, poisoned, or burned to death with saline solution 2,700 babies. You know what they did the next day? 2,700 of them. We've been killing 3,000 babies on average every single day. You remember when George W. Bush got on international news and said, we were just struck by terrorists and they killed almost 3,000 of our citizens and we will hunt them down and bring them to justice. We will not let this happen. Where was the speech for the unborn children that day? That we'll hunt them down, we'll bring them to justice. We just killed 3,000. Do you know how many babies we've killed in the United States of America? Since 1975 million. We only got 330 million people in our whole country. We've killed 20% of our population. And when you look at why God sent the Israelites into Canaan to get rid of the Canaanites, it was because they had adopted the horrible practices that God said never even came into my mind that they would burn their own sons and daughters in the fire to Molech. They were killing their firstborn children on an altar. You think they ever got close to killing 3,000 a day? And yet, that's what we've been doing since 1973. You know, I applaud the efforts of those people down in Texas of late who have said, we're done with that. We believe that unborn children are people and we're going to stand by that. And to me, it's exciting that the Lord's Church has always said that. In every arena, we've been able to say it. Now, where would you get the idea? Where could you get the idea? It would be all right to kill unborn children. There again, don't take my word for this. This is not something that I'm saying. This is something that is recognized by the atheistic community. There's no fundamental difference between man and the higher mammals and their mental faculties. He says, all right, if you're thinking about who or what can be killed, humans aren't really different than animals. You know, if I'm sitting on the pew next to my wife, then one of us is smarter than the other one. And it's not me. My wife is, I mean, nothing gets by her. I'm constantly amazed at the ability she has to get to the bottom of stuff. Now, 
Okay. She is a little bit more intelligent than me, maybe a lot more, but it's just a, a little bit uh, on a level of, let's say, three points, five points, whatever more intelligence. But it's not a different kind of intelligence. Here's what Darwin's saying. Okay, you put you right here and you put a chimpanzee right next to you. Chimpanzee's not as smart as you, but the same kind of intelligence. You're the same kind of being. He just happens to have a lower IQ than you've got. And so there's no fundamental difference. It's just a gradation of ability, of, of intellectual ability. There's no difference between you and the animal. Among some animal species, infant killing appears to be a natural practice. Could it be natural for humans too? A, a trait inherited from our primate ancestors? Charles Darwin noted in The Sin of Man that infanticide has been probably the most important of all checks on population growth throughout most of human history. Now listen to me. Here's why you cannot not talk about atheism and its implications. This is not a, oh, hey, I don't believe in God, and I'm just like you, we're just different. No, this is, if you don't believe that there's a God, there are implications that follow from that. And the psalmist had it right. The fool said in his heart, there's no God. And then the next three verses say they are corrupt, they have done abominable things, there's none who does good, no, not one. Now, what that means is if you're putting into practice that belief that there's no God, then that's what follows from the belief. There is none who has done good. There is a consequence to that belief if you behave in that way. Well, what's the consequence? Well, human life takes on the same value as animal life. Keep going with me. Peter Singer. Now, now listen, let me tell you about Peter Singer just a minute. Uh, I watched a video with Richard Dawkins, the world's foremost most evolutionary atheist at the present, and Peter Singer, who is supposed to be the world's leading ethicist. Now, an ethicist is a person who tells you what is morally right and morally wrong. And Richard Dawkins says to Singer in the video, I believe you're the most moral person that I know. Okay? That you're dealing with the atheistic representative of how you come to the conclusion of something being right or wrong. This is the guy. This is, this is how you get. Here's what he says. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or pig, for example, we will often find the non-human to have superior capacities. Only the fact that the defective infant is a member of the species Homo sapiens, what does that mean? He's a, he's a human. Only the fact that the one that's not as intelligent is a human leads it to be treated differently from the dog or pig. You know what? We've historically kept humans alive because they're human. Species membership alone, however, is not morally relevant, he says. That's not, that's a, that's not true. If humans are made in the image and likeness of God, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. In fact, that's the exciting thing about it. You come into the world with inherent value. Did our forefathers understand this? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among those are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where do you get basic human rights? God. Is where you get a basic human right, a creator. 
kicked the Creator out of the picture, and now what are you? You are the top of the chain of a long evolutionary process that has no supernatural intelligent, moral God behind it. And guess what? If you happen not to be as valuable to society and you're not as intelligent as a German shepherd, you now have no more value to society. And he says, if you're looking at a dog or pig and the pig might give humankind some good bacon or some good pork chops and the human is just going to take up space, then why in the world would you keep the human? We've said you keep him because he's a human. But from an atheistic evolutionary standpoint, that doesn't make any sense. If we can put aside the obsolete and erroneous notion of the sanctity of all human life, we might start to look like look at human life like it really is. Okay, guys. Not Kyle Butt talking right there. That's the world's leading atheistic ethicist who says, you know, we just need to quit saying that human life is any different than anybody else. And when he says anybody else, what he means is all the other animals. Keep going. Nevertheless, the main point is clear. Killing a disabled infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Very often it's not wrong at all. Now there's another statement that he makes that's so so telling. Maybe I'm going to see if I have it. Oh, no, I don't think I have it. But in, in another lesson that I'm dealing with abortion, he says, I don't see how anybody can say that birth marks a morally dividing line between an unborn baby and a baby that's born. He said, and we've always viewed, I say we've always, talking about the atheist community, always said a disabled infant in utero, a disabled fetus, you could eliminate. He said, but then we say, but once they're born, you couldn't. But if birth doesn't mark a morally dividing line, which that's what we Christians have always said. Birth doesn't mark a morally dividing line. That baby is just as important one day after he's born as it was one day before he's born. The Bible uses the same words for babies in utero as the ones who are born. Birth's not a morally dividing line. So finally, Singer, you're finally on the same page. Birth is not a morally dividing line. And he says, if you could eliminate a baby before it's born, according to my atheistic position, and birth is not a morally dividing line, then what? Well, he says it, plain as day. He says, really, it'd be better if we let the baby be born and the parents and the doctor have about a month or two months afterward to discuss whether they want to keep it or not. And then two months after, if they decide they don't want to keep it, hey, two months before, we'd let them kill it. So why not two months after? Morally, you can't say there's any reason. So yeah, let's just... that. He says, and that way you know a whole lot more about its real capability. And this is the leading ethicist from the atheistic standpoint in the world. Why? Because William Probine showed you the truth of that when he said, atheism can't give you a standard to make any type of ethical, moral decisions. It can't do it. If there's no God, then guess what is moral? Whatever you decide to do. Follow the instincts and impulses that seem the best to you. And that's what the atheistic community has to admit. James Rachels. Now notice the title of his book at the very bottom. Created from animals, the moral implications of Darwinism. Here's what he's saying. If Darwinism really is true, what would that mean? And he works it out for you. If there's no God and Darwinism really is true, and we evolved from primordial soup millions of years ago, here's what it would look like. 
An infant with severe brain damage, even if it survives for many years, it might never learn to speak. Its mental powers may never rise above a primitive level. In fact, its psychological capacities may be markedly inferior to those of a typical rhesus monkey. In that case, moral individualism would see no reason to prefer its life over the monkey. You know what? We might have some people who their mental or physical capacities might not be as good as a monkey, so why would you keep that person alive instead of the monkey? Okay, so what do you do with the person? It's the next question. What do you do? Well, he tells you. Some unfortunate humans, because they have suffered brain damage, are not rational agents. What are we to say about them? The natural conclusion, according to the doctrine we're considering, would be that their status is that of mere animals. And perhaps we should go on to conclude that they may be used as non-human animals, or used as laboratory subjects, or as food. If I understand it right, this man taught in one of the largest public universities in the nation. He says, you know what? If Darwinism is true, and we just evolved from animals and we're no different, and we do experiments on animals, why not on people? I'll tell you why not. Because people are made in the image and likeness of God. And in Genesis chapter 9, that's exactly what God was saying. Humans are different. Not because they're smarter, not because they're more intelligent, not because they can run faster, not because they're stronger. You know why a human is different than any other creature in the world? Humans are made in the image of God and monkeys are not. Humans are made in the image of God and your dog that lives at your house is not. Humans are made in the image of God and cats are not. Humans are made in the image of God. And you prefer a human's life because you're made in the image of God too. And God has said, you honor my image everywhere it's found. And that's why the number one commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because your neighbor is made in God's image just like you. And it doesn't matter how intelligent your neighbor is. It doesn't matter if your neighbor has been in a car accident and they have permanent brain damage and they will never again be able to carry on a conversation. That neighbor is valuable because that neighbor is made in God's image. But you kick God out of the picture and you kick out all human rights. And the atheistic evolutionary community recognizes that. That's nothing that they even deny, which is surprising to me. Eric Pionk in 2006, he was down in Texas. He was the Distinguished Texas Scientist of the Year. If you read the transcript of how this played out, he went up to the guy who was filming, told him not to film it. The guy shot his camera up in the rafters. Pianca stands up and says, he's a reptile scientist, he studies reptiles, and he says, humans are no better than any other organism on this planet and humans are causing other life forms to go extinct, and we need to fix this. And the way to do it is to kill 90% of all the humans on the planet. If a person who's receiving the Distinguished Scientist of the Year Award in Texas stands up in front of 400 educators who are teaching the children of the Texas school system and says we need to kill 9 out of 10 people on this planet. What should happen? Outrage? Anger? Someone 
call for the resignation of him from his post and the taking back of the award, someone standing up immediately and saying, we distance ourselves from that. Something. What did happen? Standing ovation. Enthusiastically clapped for this man's suggestion that we kill 90% of the world's population because we're no better than animals according to his atheistic evolutionary proposition. That's the implication of it. Dr. Bianca's talk, and now, now some people said, no, that's not really what he was saying. He really wasn't saying that. Well, you get on the Facebook page and look at what the students who were there listening were saying. Notice, Dr. Bianca's talk at the TAS meeting was mostly on the problems humans are causing as we rapidly proliferate around the globe. He's a radical thinker, that one. I mean, he's basically advocating for the death of all but 10% of the current population and at the risk of sounding just as radical, I think he's right. If you teach a kid that they are just another animal, what will they act like? I want you to listen to this statement. Jeffrey Dahmer in the 90s was a serial killer that attracted worldwide attention and did things to people that if we were to describe even a, a hint of them here this evening, it would, it would literally make you physically sick. As disgusting and vile as any serial killer in the history of the word. He was convicted on 17 accounts and put in jail for 900 something odd years. Basically, he was going to be there for life. And in 95, he was in an interview with Stone Phillips. And Stone Phillips asked him, why did you think you could do this to other people? And here's what he says. He says, if a person doesn't think that there's a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. As the interview continued, he said, I thought that what one blob of primordial slime did to another blob of primordial slime didn't matter. Dan Barker, in one of his statements that we have on record, says, In the end, humans are just like rats. But there's no reason they're here. There's no purpose in their life. They're just another animal like rats. Or he says, like broccoli. That's even worse. I hate broccoli. Put some cheese on it, though. It makes it all right. He says, just like rats of broccoli. Stock of broccoli grows up, it dies, nobody's there to eat it. What was its purpose? Nothing. Dahmer says, hey, if there's no God and you're a blob of primordial slime and I'm a blob of primordial slime, what I do to you doesn't matter. And guess what? He's right. If there's no God, what one person does to another person ultimately does not matter. You can try to talk around it and you can say, yeah, but you've got to do the stuff that's best for society. Is that wrong? Well, I'm not going to say it's wrong. I'm just going to say, okay, but is it morally right or wrong? Well, I'm not going to... If there's no image of God, then people are not more valuable than anything else in this planet. You know the irony of that? 
What will a man give in exchange for his soul? If a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul, what has that person accomplished? You know what Jesus was saying? That the equivalent... Now listen to it, and I want you to hear it loud and clear from Jesus' implication. That your one soul is worth more than every animal on this planet. It's worth more than every natural resource. It's worth more than every single physical entity in existence today. Your one soul, the, the spiritual, immortal soul that resides in your body is worth every extinct, every partially extinct, every endangered. It's worth all of them. When Jesus said, God clothes the grass of the field and He takes care of the birds of the air, of how much more value are you than them? You know, we've come into a society that some of us have accidentally adopted the idea that no, you know, it it is something that I need to jump out of a boat and save my dog because my dog is really important to my family. And that's okay, no dog has anything close to the value of a human soul. No resource in the world. Let me tell you the exciting thing about Dahmer. Stone Phillip looks looks over at him in the interview. You can watch, it's amazing. He's sitting there by his dad. Lionel. And he says, Jeffrey, when did you change your mind? He looks at his dad and says, Dad, you know when you sent me that creation science material, I realized evolution was false. And I had done terrible things. At our offices at Apologetics Press years ago, when I was flipping through the stuff, I saw the name Lionel Dahmer on top of one of our manuscripts that we had. I had no idea who he was. Come to find out, some of that creation science material that was sent to Jeffrey Dahmer was our materials from Apologetics Press. There is a book titled, uh, I think it's titled Deep Grace. I just recently read, I meant to remember the book, remember the title, about the lady who started sending Jeffrey Dahmer Bible correspondence courses that he started doing and decided he wanted to become a Christian. And one of the members of the Lord's Church went in there and literally baptized Dahmer into Christ. I was talking about that and another lady came up to me. She said, yeah, you want me to tell you the rest of the story? So the rest of the story is he was put in confinement, solitary confinement for 24 hours a day. 23 hours a day. He was let out for one hour. After he became a Christian and realized the terrible things that he had done, and the idea that Jesus Christ could forgive him of all that. Now let me tell you, that's an exciting idea. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I am chief. Said Jeffrey Dahmer, I was involved in the system where he was. And he asked the warden to go back into general population because he felt like he needed to pay for the crimes that he did. Warden said, if you go back in general population, you know they'll kill you because even criminals kill people who did what you do to people, did to people. He said, I know. And I think I deserve it. And they put him back in general population at his request. And he was beaten to death several days later, weeks, months. I think it was just a few months. Now, where do you 
get the idea that if you've done something wrong in the past, horribly, terribly wrong in the past, and you know it was wrong, where can you get from an atheistic situation forgiveness of that? Nowhere. Because atheism doesn't recognize right or wrong except every one of us knows. Every one of us knows. We've done wrong stuff. And we know deep down there's wrong stuff that we've done and that people do. And it doesn't matter what you say about it or how you paint it. We are guilty. And there's only one place you can ever go to have the knowledge and the freedom to say, my sin is forgiven. And that is Jesus Christ, who is your Creator, who made us in His image, and is the only one who has the prerogative to say, your sins are forgiven. And that's why Christianity is the most exciting idea that's ever been presented to mankind because you're made in the image of God. We ruined that image and Jesus Christ came back and said, this is what it ought to look like and you can have my forgiveness if you'll obey me. And atheism says, we're not even going to say you've ever done anything wrong, although every one of us knows we have. Dorothea Day wrote a poem in response to a guy by the name of William Ernest Henley. William Ernest Henley wrote a poem titled Invictus. Maybe you've heard it, at least some sections out of it. He wrote it in in response to his approach to life. He said, there cannot be a loving God who would allow me to go through the pain that I've gone through. He had tuberculosis. One of his legs was removed because of it. And in a freak accident, a chain got hung around his leg. He was drugged down a train track and had all kinds of complications. And his TB kicked back in after that. He died, I think, at the age of... No, he wasn't very old at all and had lived a, a painful life. And he wrote a, a poem that's very famous titled Invictus. And in this poem, he says that he thanks whatever gods may be for his unconquerable soul in the fell clutch of circumstance he would not wince or cry aloud under the bludgeonings of chance his head is bloody but unbowed beyond this place of wrath and tears lies but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll I'm the master of my fate I'm the captain of my soul As you listen, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. It doesn't matter if I've done stuff that I thought was wrong. If I didn't walk in the straight gate, I'm the one determining my ultimate existence. But did you listen? Beyond this place of wrath and tears lies but the horror of the shade. When you know there's things you should have done that you didn't, or things that you did do and you shouldn't have, you realize that you need something. And all he could see on the other side of his physical life was horror. 
But then in the face of that, he was still trying to say, yeah, but I'm, I'm still in charge. Dorothea Day was enamored with his humanistic ideas for a while, followed his teachings, and then came in contact with the teachings of Jesus. And this is what she wrote to him. Out of the light that dazzled me, dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ the conqueror of my soul. Since His the sway of circumstance, I wouldn't wince or cry aloud under the rule which men call chance. My head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of, ten, of sin and tears, that life with Him and His the aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared my punishment from the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. The fact of the matter is, if you cannot honestly say Christ is the captain of your soul, the only thing that you can look forward to after this life is the shade of horror. But if you can say with all of your heart, Christ is the captain of my soul, He cleared the punishments from the scroll, and that's why I can look at life and say, I'm here as an image bearer of God, I know what God has told me I need to do and don't need to do. I have a standard for what's morally right and wrong and that's why I'm going to treat you with respect and dignity because that's how my God treats me. And that is the fruit of Christianity. And as we look at the fruits of atheism, we see they're very bitter. They're very destructive. And no society can last long that tries to build on the idea that there's no God and that humans are not special. Sure, appreciate you being here. It has been a blessing to me to get to talk to you about these things. Things are very serious. These things are ideas that have some real serious consequences. And what's exciting to me is we get to see the effects of people changing from this. And what I mean by that is, uh, I talked to a guy not long ago. He was a teacher at the school where I was. And he said, uh, hey, watch your videos in class today. And I said, you watched our videos? And he, really? He said, yeah, we watch your videos in first period often. I said, well, how do you watch our videos in first period class at your public school? He said, well, my county lets me teach the Bible as history. And I started creation, and we teach what the Bible says about creation. And he said, it had a lot of great results. And he said, that book we've got back there, Truth Be Told, it goes from creation, deals with all the evolution stuff, and talks about the Bible being inspired. It's, a, it's kind of a full one-package deal back there. He said, oh, I give about 40, 40 50 of those a year, a year away to my students that come in. I put them on my bookshelf, and any kid that wants them, if he picks them up or she picks it up, I say, hey, you can take that home. He said, I give about 40, 50 of those away every year. He said, do you see that girl right there? A girl was sitting beside her parents. They're about third row from the back. I was talking to him there in the doorway. He said, that girl was in one of my classes, and I was teaching her all about this, and she had a bunch of questions. I said, hey, I teach, I preach right down the road. Come on down. I'll answer any question you've got. So she came, started visiting. She was baptized into Christ, brought her parents. They were baptized into Christ, invited one of her friends who was baptized into Christ, who she brought her two parents and were baptized into Christ. And then her aunt and uncle, if I remember correctly, were baptized into Christ. So overall, eight people became Christians because there was one guy who had the courage to 
teach people about a God that loves them in a system that most of the time doesn't let you do that. And so here's what I'm telling you needs to be done. Every one of you has a sphere of influence that we don't have. I mean, I've got a sphere of influence, you have one, and sometimes they overlap. A lot of yours won't overlap with me. And there are people in it that need to know they're special, and God made them, and they're important and they're valuable. And right now they're believing stuff that tells them different than that. How can you help those people? Maybe it's your grandkids. Maybe it's your nieces and nephews. Maybe it's your friends at school. Had one lady, she said, I want to give some of these materials to all the kids in my, my son's first grade class. She went to the principal. He said, give them to them as a, as a um, present for Christmas. So she got 30 of our books. It sold for like, I think, 10, 15 bucks. She said, well, how much can I get them for? I think we gave them to her for three bucks a piece, five bucks a piece maybe. And got them, gave them to every one of her kids. Another guy I know the the actual rule for your public school system you can pass out any religious piece of literature you want in any public school in the United States of America if you do this on the desk and say it's there if you want it as long as you don't specifically hand it to a kid you can legally pass out any piece of material you want now some principals will let you in there more lenient and some won't but legally you can do that this guy said, hey, your new flooded book is amazing. I want 200 of them. I teach PE. But when my kids come down to PE, I want 200 of those books right there, and I'm going to say, hey, you can pick it up if you want. But how many of those do you think he had left when those kids walked by a full-color flooded book, a hardback, gave away 200 of them, never handed it to them, put it right there on the table, they came and picked it up. What can you do? You might look at somebody, Jeffrey Dahmer. Would you have ever thought that Jeffrey Dahmer was a target for, hey, he would really benefit from some information that shows him God is a great idea? No. Who in your life needs this material? Maybe it's a card that directs them to our website. Maybe it's a book that you give them. Maybe it's just a word that says, hey, have you seen this or looked at this? I don't know. I don't know what it is in your life. And if there's anything I can do for you, uh, another friend of mine said, hey, I want to give one of your study Bibles to every teacher in our school. That's 70 of them. They said, we'll, we'll get it done. You, we'll do it. And you can give us 20 bucks for them. You can give us 10 bucks for them. You can give us nothing for them. We'll raise the money somewhere else. But we've got to get it into the hands of people where it can make a difference. And you know what? This is great. Glad you're here. This is exciting. We got, uh, this is a big crowd. I wasn't expecting a crowd. This, this, is, this is good. 80 people here. 100 people heard it tonight. How many people need to hear it? Tens of thousands, millions. Can we get it out there? Yeah, if we're all working together. If every one of us told one other person, that'd be 160. If they told one other person, that'd be 320. In a, in a month, we could, I mean, you're talking tens of thousands. So, how can I help you minister to the people around you that need this information? That's the question. I want to thank the congregation for inviting me. I think it shows some real wisdom and foresight to have this kind of material presented to you. Tomorrow night we start at, well, I'm done. I'm going to let anybody else do any more announcements. I just want to say thank you so much for being here tonight. It's so encouraging. I left my wife and my three kids and love them. And every time I leave my house, it breaks my heart to go. i got three kids. They're all still in high school. But I feel like this stuff is so important. It needs to be done. And so I do it. So let's join in and do all that we can to make the biggest difference we can in this country and in the world. Thanks.